Hello and welcome to another episode of the Detox Podcast, a culture and conversation podcast where you can detox from the world around you and get a window into how other people live their lives. Come detox with detox. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and on today's episode, I had the pleasure of speaking to New York Times bestselling author, Lauren Tarshis. Lauren is on the show today to talk about her I Survived book series, as well as her picture book coming out next month, Only the Dog Knows I Picked My Nose. But more than that, Lauren and I get into a great conversation around writing, lessons we can learn from history, and some advice for those who may be wondering, how do you get started writing? It's a great conversation. Lauren is an absolutely delightful person. I'm excited for you to hear it. Uh, But first, I do want to let you know about today's sponsors. So this episode of the Detox Podcast is brought to you by Snuffy. Snuffy is a clothing brand about empowering you to show your weird unapologetically with bravery and confidence. 10% of profit goes to LGBTQ plus organizations led by trans people of color. Shop online now at snuffy.co. That's snuffy, S-N-U-F-F-Y.co. The owner and operator of Snuffy is Nick Silvestri, who designed the Detox podcast logos. So if you like it, you want to go support him, go check it out, snuffy.co. This episode of the Detox podcast is also brought to you by Empire Toys. Nostalgia is something everyone loves, and Empire Toys in Keller, Texas is on nostalgia overload. With toys and action figures from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and today, Empire Toys is a one-stop shop for a trip down memory lane and a chance to reclaim what was once yours, but likely sold at a garage sale. Check out Empire Toys on Facebook, Instagram, or at TheEmpireToys.com. Now, if this is your first time listening to the Detox Podcast, welcome. We hope that this episode allows you to kick back, relax, and just detox from the world around you for a little bit at a time. And if you are returning to the podcast, welcome back. We really appreciate that you have chosen to spend the next hour of your time with us. Now, if you like the show and you want to support it, there's a couple ways you can do that. First, you can subscribe to the podcast on your podcast platform of choice so that way you never miss an episode. Next, you can rate and review the podcast also on whichever platform you use. And third, you can share the podcast with a friend. Word of mouth really helps out independent podcasts such as this one. So without further ado, my conversation with Lauren is right up after this. What's going on? My name is Joe Shaw, and I host the music podcast After the Encore. After the Encore is a long-form, career retrospective podcast that takes you behind the music of some of your favorite artists. Musicians like John Oates of Holland Oates, Chris Kirkpatrick of NSYNC, Jarrett Reddick of Bowling for Soup, and many others. Each season of the podcast is themed around a different topic, like the boy bands of the 90s, badass women in music, or even artists that were featured on the TV show, The Voice. I am committed to taking you deep inside an artist's mind to find out why they do what they do, what does music mean to them, and how do they quantify success. We tell an overarching story which will take you not only behind the music, but into the psyche of the artists themselves. After the Encore is a proud member of the Roberts Media Group podcast family, Check us out on any of your favorite podcast platforms today.
Welcome back to the Detox Podcast. With me at this time, I'm thrilled to have this best-selling author on the show, New York Times best-selling author, if I do remember correctly, Lauren Tarshis. Lauren, how are you doing today? Hi, Joe. I'm great and so happy to be here with you. I'm excited to dive into a lot of different things with you today. Um, but before we do that, I do like to ask people here at the Detox Podcast, right off the top of the show, what are you detoxing from? Oh, what a great question, Joe. I'm detoxing from worry. Mm. I'm, I'm detoxing from uncertainty. And um, trying to just have each day be its day and be able to relish delights like being with you. It is so easy. I was speaking with someone uh, last week and they, they said one quote that stuck with them that they heard in a movie a while ago. Was somebody somebody was up in a in a dangerous situation and and they were waiting. Uh, I think it was a trial or something. And the lawyer asked him, like, you know, if this goes one way, this is going to happen. If it goes another way, it's, this is going to happen. Aren't you worried? And the guy said, "Would it help?" Yeah. And it's so easy, I think, to to get sucked in in the worry and in the in the the what about this and just kind of compounding that worry over and over and over. But when we stop back and go or step back and go, you know, there's, it's not helping. So how can we reframe each day as its own, like you were talking about and just enjoy it and be present? Well, it's true. And I think that, I think that there's so many different ways of putting that what you just said and the idea that, we cannot control events. We cannot control what, you know, is going to, you know, could happen around us or to us. We can only control how we respond to it. And though, you know, I just, I keep, that has been my mantra, certainly through the pandemic. And um, it's, it's ironic to me because it's a little bit of the theme of my series, which right. was certainly not my like intent going in, but I am struck by that big through line through all of my books, which is no one expected, you know, no one expected, you know, the, right now I'm writing about an avalanche that happened in, you know, in 1910, right. they expected the, you know, so um, all we can do is try to, um, try to, I guess, bolster our relationships, strengthen our, our, our faith in ourselves, um, and, and, and face life as a friend of mine says with courage and optimism. Mm, mm. I love that. I think we could all use a little bit of courage and optimism from time to time. Never enough. No, it's not. <laughs> I, you know, you talked about uh, the series that you're writing and I want to dig into that specifically. I want to talk about I survived. Um, but before we get there, I wonder if you could back, take us through a timeline of what drew you to writing in the first place. What were some of those early experiences like for you? 
Well, I, as I tell every kid that I meet in my school visits that I, I am the, I really feel that I was the last person in any of my elementary, middle, and even high school classes that anyone would have expected to grow up to be an author. And the person who is, is the most shocked to find myself here talking to you about books that I've written is me. Um, I didn't read as a kid. I was, I had reading struggles. I truly, the first book I ever finished was A Tale of Two Cities when I was 14 years old. Wow. And it was only then that I understood what I had to do in order to read, which was to reread every paragraph a few times, take notes. So I could read words as a kid, but I couldn't, I, I just would lose track of things. And I, I didn't understand that I had a reading struggle, that I had to develop strategies that I should have asked for help. I just thought I wasn't smart. There was some mysterious thing wrong with me that would never be fixed. Right. And so I just kind of muddled through in this way and always felt very fraudulent, always had to kind of like pretend and listen in to friends talking about things. And I just always had this sense of just not really being a part of the conversation or um, quite with it. Right. So um, it really wasn't until high school that I started to read and then really um, very gradually developed the confidence to try to become a writer, which was what my father's profession was. My dad was a writer when I was growing up, a freelance writer, and it wasn't a great way of making money. You know, we lived in the tiniest house in our neighborhood and my mom was a teacher and that really is what paid the bills. But my dad really loved what he did and he was always learning new stuff and he worked at home, which was super weird back when I was growing up. Sure. Like nobody had a dad working at home. Um, <laughs> And like the sound of his typewriter was this sort of music in our household. Mm -hmm. So it was this sort of romantic idea, right. but it was also an impossible idea to me. Like, a you know, like my father being maybe like a pro football player would been sure. like the same, the same sort of um, lack of connection to anything I could have imagined myself doing. So, um, so, so for me, when I share my story to kids, my narrative is very much, um, you know, don't think that you should know what you're good at or what you're capable of when you're eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13. I was 42 when my first book for kids came out. And, um, and I still feel like I have so much to learn. And that's what one of the things I really like about doing what I do is that every book is sort of this fresh start and this opportunity to kind of you know, to, to explore some new, some new craft or obviously a new topic. So um, I think that, that, you know, I feel like I'm sort of on this never ending journey. Yeah. I, it's interesting. You talked about your strategies for reading, right. <clears throat> and how you had to learn how to learn in, in a sense. And I think yeah. it's so it's interesting, you know, as my daughter is entering into first grade and mm -hmm. so we're, we're learning about, <clears throat> we're learning about, uh, you know, all these, these questions like, does, does your child need accommodations? Do we have this? And there's a lot of dialogue around identifying things like you mentioned um, that I know even when I was going through school, it was you kind of you as a parent would have to kind of figure out if you needed some assistance or if you needed additional accommodations or whatever to help with. And now we're starting to dialogue about it so we can set kids up across the board with the skills they need to succeed. And I think 
that's a, a mindset shift in our society with recognizing, hey, we all learn differently and we all need different things in order to succeed. There's not like just a few smart people and then everybody else is dumb. We're all learning differently. And I think we're, we're getting better about that, but it's, it's a ways to go for sure. No, you're so right. I think it is such a shift. And I think, um, I think also just the, the idea that there are a lot of different ways to learn and just because you struggle to read doesn't mean that you're not smart and just as curious um, about the world than, you know, the kids who are reading Lord of the Rings under the covers when they're eight, like my friend Michelle. (laughs) (laughs) I I want to, uh, let's dive in. Um, to I survived and, and I, you know, it's interesting. It's interesting to me getting, getting, I survived and reading through it. And this, I mean, I grew up reading scholastic books all the time. And, and so some of my favorites were, were volumes like Animorphs. And so there was something comforting about getting, I survived. It reminded me of that. And it transported me in, in that like mindset. I was like, eager to read and ready to read as soon as I obtained a copy of I Survive. But but what was the the motivation for you to start this series? I know the first one was tied to the, the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Is that correct? Well, the, no, the first one. So I started writing this series in 2010. So the That's Gal- right. I apologize. Yep. No, no, don't worry. Because it, it's confusing because we have right now I have 20. I just finished the Galveston book is the 21st in what we call like the core novels. And those are the ones where I'm writing one a year. And these are the these are books that like my Galveston hurricane book that comes out, I guess, in a few weeks right. is is just like the others where it's an enormous amount of research. These are historical fiction books. I travel to everywhere I write about. I interview experts. I mean, it's almost ridiculous. If you came to my office, you'd think I was writing like, you know, I was like a scholar for, you know, <laughs> teaching some you know, course at Cambridge. But in fact, I'm writing, you know, a book for, you know, nine, 10, 11 year olds. Um, so that series has been going on since, you know, my, my I've been, I'm continuing to write the I Survive series. Meanwhile, my brilliant editors at Scholastic had the idea of adapting the I Survive series into graphic novels, which by the way, they're yes. doing to Animorphs. So you'll soon to be able to, to uh, enjoy those. I yeah, didn't so realize they, that. Wow. Yes. So they, they, this great group at Scholastic, there's, we have an imprint at Scholastic called Graphics with yes, an X. That's right. And, you know, the, and David Saylor is um, the incredible kind of brilliant creative mind behind it and he they began they had this idea of starting to I think babysitters club was the first Mm. um and they've just slowly so they I I was quite skeptical actually when they suggested that we do I survived I thought well I already wrote these books kids have already read them these stories what's what's more to say I mean but what's been so incredible is seeing how this team adapts my characters my stories brings them to life Mm -hmm. takes my you know some of in most cases sort of my exact words but in the hands of this incredible script writer named Georgia Ball and these teams of artists create something entirely new so I that's why I think you know there is sort of this can a little bit of confusion sometimes about, you know, we've got these two things happening simultaneously, but the impetus for writing I Survive really, really began, I would say two different forces. One was as a mother of four kids, uh, a kind of recovering, struggling reader 
And um, the mother of kids who didn't like to read was always looking for books that would be meaningful, but also gripping. Sure. Um, and just was very, was, was, I struggled to find books that they would like to read because they weren't those readers who were just voraciously, you know, going to the library. I would see my friends with their kids. I was so jealous, you know, these tattered canvas bags filled with books. Today's right. our library day. You know, they just, we have to, <laughs> I can't possibly keep up. And I'd be like, oh my gosh, what will they read? The side of the cereal box, maybe. Right. So um, there was that. And then at the same time, I've been at Scholastic in the magazine division for years and years and years and years and years, really my entire career writing and editing magazines. And now I actually kind of oversee the part of the division. Um, and our mission in magazines, which was where Scholastic actually began 101 years ago, is to you know, to help kids understand themselves in the world mm. and to provide stories, articles, information that's going to build kids' knowledge, their ability to think and navigate their world. So I noticed, you know, anytime I would write a story about a historical event, even if it was sort of very remote and even like on the surface sort of dull, you know, I kids, if I put a, a real kid in the middle of it and told the story from the, through the eyes of that child from history, those were the stories that kids love the most. And I would hear from teachers all the time that those stories were especially, um, like they grabbed the attention of even their most struggling readers. Mm. So I, I started to kind of put two and two together. And I was actually sort of surprised when I started poking around that there wasn't already a historical fiction series, just like <laughs> I survived for this age group. There are wonderful narrative nonfiction books and, and um, for older children, slightly older kids, people like, uh, you know, Jim Murphy and Deborah Hopkinson and, Tanya Bolden, I mean, writing incredible books, but I, I was really looking to cap, you know, to get that place. Your kids are too young now to, you'll know, soon you'll know, you'll be, it's like where magic tree house ended, you know, it was like, they love the magic tree house, these wonderful books that were just, you know, historical books where you'd go back in time with Jack and Annie, the right. main characters by Mary Pope Osborne. And then there was a lull until the lightning thief by Rick Riordan. Yeah. And so I, that's really, I thought I'm that, that, so I think that I survived has filled that gap kids who finished the magic tree house, and then they can go into I survived. And I think what's been wonderful is that then a lot of my readers go on and then they can read like Alan Gratz's books and, you know, these, they, they, it opens up, hopefully opens up a lot of doors for them. Right. I remember reading, um, I enjoyed reading uh, like the Chronicles of Narnia and the Hardy Boys books kind of in, in that, that age gap. Um, and it was, it was good, but the, the, the writing style was a little bit older. And so at times I had trouble kind of like keeping my attention. Um, and so I do agree with the, with you that the, I survived the age group is the perfect bridge that you need from one, from ending one chapter pun intended, of your life and moving on to another one um, and keeping your attention and, and continuing to fill that love of reading. Yeah. And I think what's been really nice is that the graphic novels, because now there are four of them out as of, I think, yesterday, 9-11 came out yesterday. Oh. I survived the attacks of 9-11, which is an adaptation of one of the earlier books in my series, is that I think we're seeing that it's, you know, a lot of the kids who loved the series 
are now reading the graphic novels and they are a very different type of experience. And then it's also capturing a very different audience. Right. Some older kids, because some of the books like the Nazi invasion, I survived Nazi invasion graphic novels, actually quite sophisticated looking. Mm. Um, and I think that that's attracting maybe even some kids who didn't read my first novel, but are sure. attracted to this. So it's interesting to just have different ways, I think to your point, lots of different ways for kids to access important stories, right? So yeah. that that's that's become really that just as you sort of your intent of your podcast has evolved, right? And right. grown and with time you wouldn't have pre predicted. Right. The the my in retrospect, I sort of see the series um in ways that I hadn't really anticipated. Mm. Um as part of this work to help as many readers as possible, who many of whom are fragile readers or struggling readers, um, have access to history and science and stories that hopefully will inspire them. That's wonderful. I, I'm curious, when with all of the different I Survive books that you've done and the level of research and detail that you've put into each one, what, which one was the most surprising to you when you started digging into the research? That's a great question, Joe. I mean, I think that was so, what I've learned is, you know, for instance, right now I'm the next, the I survived 22, I haven't announced it, you know, is going to be about this the deadliest avalanche in American history that happened in 1910. There's this amazing book called The White Cascade that's for us. You know, it's an adult book. And I, and it's been on my, someone sent it to me, you know, it's just where people send me disaster books. It's just like great piece of journalism. And it's just an incredible book about this, these two tra trains in 1910 stranded in a blizzard in the Cascade Mountains of Washington. And then this avalanche sweeps the trains off into a ravine, you know, oh, so it's, man. it's very dramatic, but just it actually, now that I'm delving into it, in fact, here is one of the historical books that I just, it just happened to have it here, <laughs> right in my pocket, you know, um, <laughs> which is like written, it's called Conquest and Catastrophe, the Triumph and Tragedy of the Great Northern Railway through Stevens Pass. And this is a, you know, I mean, I'm just fascinated. This is really, you know, this man, Gary Sherman wrote this in 2004 and it's, you know, he just pieced this together and it's really a, the, so what's surprising is of course, as in every single one of my books, this is not just the story of a disaster. It's not, it's not actually the story of an avalanche at all. Just like Galveston, the hurricane that happened in 1900, that wasn't about a hurricane at all. The Titanic was not about a shipwreck at all, right? So the Titanic is, Titanic is about hubris, about, oh, we it can't, no, we have an unsinkable ship, right. no problem. We don't need lifeboats or we don't have enough, we're fine. Yep. You know, Galveston Hurricane, similarly, it was about um, building this great glorious city that was the, one of the, it was the wealthiest city in America of its size. More millionaires lived in Galveston in 1900 than any other city in America, I think, except one other city. Gorgeous, no one, but yet it was on the coast of Texas, on the Gulf of Mexico, just a few miles from a place called Indianola, which had been wiped off the map by a hurricane not long before. So again, it's about how did you know how do these, how do how do we how what is the interplay between human our own like wishful thinking, um, hubris, um, zeal to um, grow. Um, 
conquer mm-hmm. um, and, and these sort of natural forces. So I would say, Joe, that every single one of my books, and this is what I love, love, love about the, just that research process and the discovery process, it just reveals layers and layers um, about history, about, I learn about so many different tributaries mm-hmm. of, um, of the past and themes that are somehow, you know, that of course continue today. So um, they've all been, they've all been very surprising. And usually, you know, my books end up being, you know, the, um, like my molasses flood, the Boston molasses flood that happened in 1919. You know, it's just this weird disaster of this massive tank of 3 million gallons of molasses that exploded in the North end of Boston, destroying part of this, you know, this neighborhood. So I thought, you know, and and I got a lot of kids wanted me to write about that. So I thought, well, that, you know, what, it's a tank of molasses in Boston, but it's really the story of immigration. It really turns out to be the story of the North end of Boston where more, um, Italian people lived, you know, than, than almost, you know, um, and people who were really um, discriminated against, yeah. who were reviled, and, um, and, you know, so there, who knew? Yeah. It's interesting, you talk about the story, it's not just about, you know, it's not about a molasses explosion, right? It's about immigration. It's about these people clustered together. Why were they clustered together? What were they, you know, having to come together for? And that's what's so fascinating about history is when you, like, there's an event, right? It's a tentpole event that happened and people remember it, but we don't remember the circumstances necessarily that led up to it or that were after it. Who were the people involved why were they involved? What was happening? And then more, and then additionally, on top of that, what can we learn from these situations that can better equip us to not, in some cases, make the same mistake, or at the very least, be prepared and understand how to react? I, I just watched, you know, I, well, I was going to say earlier this year, it was, it was last year because I feel like 2020 didn't happen, right? right? It didn't happen, right? Um, we skipped. <laughs> I watched the Chernobyl documentary, or not oh documentary, I'm sorry, the, the miniseries on HBO. And I, I got to say, that's the scary, like horror stuff aside, that's the most terrifying thing I've watched on TV or movie in a very long time. And it was, it was because knowing how it turns out, right? And then, and, and what I really appreciated about that show is they they told the story and they told the players, they gave the context and they laid the groundwork for everything that happened and how we got here and the ramifications afterwards. And they ended by telling you about the Japanese explosion and how they were able to react fast and reduce the destruction because of lessons learned from Chernobyl. Yes. Yes. And that is actually such a great point, Joe, because that's another thing that I always tell kids. I always say to kids, because, you know, obviously... I don't, I'm not, I really don't want kids to feel like I'm just like, look at this terrifying (laughs) event. Like, you know, aren't you like now you should never leave your house, (laughs) you know, or let's, it's every single pretty much just, that's such a great point you just made because it's, I always say to kids, pretty much anything that I'm writing about has a connection to you and has changed your world in a particular way. So Galveston 
we learned a lot about hurricanes in 1900. That city was raised up in one of the greatest feats of engineering in American history. The entire, the grade of the city was raised up. So, you know, they have flooding now, but not of the scale. The molasses flood that happened because the, there were no buildings, there were no laws. You could just, you and I could just like build whatever we wanted anywhere we wanted pretty much. And especially in an area with a lot of people who were, you know, just who were marginalized and, um, and didn't have a voice, weren't given a voice. So, um, at right after that, um, laws were passed so that there are, you know, you have to have an engineer, you have to have an architect, that's why the school that kids are in today, you don't have to worry about it collapsing because there are laws that stemmed from that tragedy, just like Chernobyl and Japan. So I think that's a, that's always, I think it's, I think it's a great way of framing anything really, any, any, you know, and I think it's also a lesson for kids in, I mean, I, I think the word I'm, I'm sort of finding myself overusing the word resilience lately because we've just been using it over and over again the right. past, you know, but that really is the theme of my books. Um, and I don't, and I'm, I really want to make sure that I'm modeling resilience in a way that isn't making it seem like an instantaneous, like, oh, you know, so this happened and then, you know, they were in the hurricane and they survived. So now they're fine. You know, right. that, that the, that the process of healing, of grieving, of coming to terms with something can be really protracted and hard. And sometimes we need a lot of people to help us. And sometimes we need to, you know, we just have to, we have to, um, we have to live through some, some often some really, really challenging times. And by the same token, sometimes it takes a while for the lessons from something terrible that happened to, you know, to have, to have hopefully a positive impact yes. on the people living later. Yes, absolutely. There's so much goodness that we can glean from, from better understanding the context around mm-hmm. the history. And then what were the learnings, right? I think if we spend so much time just focused on the shock of the situation or the disaster, we, we rob ourselves of an opportunity to learn and do better. And, and I think that's so key. That's what's so key about your books is that we're, we're teaching the full scope of the context and the situations. And then what are the takeaways? And then we as readers can use it to inform our knowledge. And then we can start going and and applying it to the real world situations. Well, thank you for saying that, Joe. That was very well put. I (laughs) like the way you, you, um, I really appreciate that. Because that is really what I try to do. And it's one of the hardest things when I'm researching, I'm always, I'm like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm like, this is now the, the fourth book on the avalanche I'm reading. And I still, you know, and I'm now just beginning to be, okay, now, you know, I'm starting to understand what the context of this, that this book really is going to be about the Amer- the building of the railroads. Right. And it wasn't as glorious as you know, we're, we've been taught. Yep. Um, it wasn't as glorious as we were taught. Yep, definitely. I want to, to pivot for a bit and I want to talk about, you've got a, a picture book coming out next month. Yes. So only my dog knows I pick my nose, walk me through. So moving from one type of literature to another, what was the, um, what was your motivating factor for writing this book for a different audience? 
Well, that's that's so funny. Well, I have it. I have. I told you, I have four kids, yep. and I, we have a very devoted dog who's right over there <laughs> playing on the floor. Um, and I I noticed like the kids. We always laugh because now like my kids are mostly grown up. And they, 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 they would, we would just laugh about things like only the dog knew, you know, that my son Jeremy used to like put on Backstreet Boys in the bathroom and sit here, you know, and only the dog knew that, you know, my daughter would sneak, you know, would, would go downstairs and sneak, you know, sneak cookies and things up into a room and then share them with him. So I just thought it would just, and then, then just like that idea of like the rhyme of that. So I have it in my mind, but I'm busy writing. I survived and with my job. So I thought was ridiculous, but I have a very dear friend. Who's a wonderful artist who also has a full-time job. And we were taking a walk one day and she just said, you know, I really have been wanting to try to, you know, write to, you know, I'd love to illustrate some picture books, you know, I've been, she had been working on her portfolio, but she said, I just don't have a story. So I said, well, I have an idea. And I thought she'd hate it because she's extremely proper. You know, she grew up in a family where her father worked for the Met Opera and she's very like very dignified. So I thought she would never want, but she, she really loved the idea. So she and I spent a whole year working on this and we never thought of it as something that would be published we really thought this will just be like a cool we're going to put ourselves through a workshop and we read a lot of books on writing picture books writing a picture book was the you know was very very much more difficult than i thought would would have thought and just like the i survive books the book really changed from being at first just a funny book about you know all the things the dog knows about the kid to really being um um, a story about accept our true selves mm. and self-acceptance and unconditional love and how, and the people and creatures right. who love us even when we're not perfect. So that there's the people, the do- you know, the world sees, right. and then there's the person your dog sees, who's a very good person, even though that person like doesn't eat their broccoli and doesn't. <laughs> brush his teeth and, you know, doesn't share his toys and, right. and makes a mess. So it just turned into this really, we, we just, it was this very fun, creative journey. And it was, I have to admit, a great antidote for me to writing about, you know, whatever I survived book I was writing at the time, which can get very dark. Sure. So I would go from like, I think I was, I guess I must've been writing about Galveston, you know, writing about the deadliest natural disaster in American history. And then Lisa and I would get together and sort of plan, you know, so we would, we would brainstorm sections of this. So I'm really excited about, about that book coming out and sharing it. Um, and strangely, there are like, we've realized that there are great connections between I survived and only my dog knows. Cause really they're all about, you know, discovering parts of yourself that, you know, bringing that might've might not have been apparent to you. Really the I survive series is, is about human beings yeah. and our capacity to, um, to go through really dark challenges and to ultimately heal. And I think that that's what interests me about it. That's what really keeps me keeps me writing the books. That's what kids sort of respond to, you know, even though they're fascinated by the detail. That, I love the details, you know, the little details of nitty gritty of, right. you know, um, but it's that human aspect. So I find it sort of um, surprising that in the end, I kind of see like, oh, I, I do see a connection between these two. Right. <laughs> 
doggy book and these dark disaster books. Well, before we head to the final two parts of the show, I want to ask you two questions. One is a bit of an easy one. So if folks want to purchase your books, do you have a preferred vendor vendor or store or outlet that you would prefer folks purchase through? I think, well, I, I love our, any independent bookstore that you can find would be fantastic. Um, and my website does have links to, you know, in ways that you can buy them independently. And I also do love our libraries too. So <laughs> always happy to hear the kid, you know, I love seeing, going into the library and seeing my books like without, with covers torn off and, yes. and, um, chocolate milk stains on them. <laughs> That's how you know it's well read and well loved. Yes, um, you don't want to see a pristine copy. No. Um, and then, if somebody is listening and they're wanting to get started writing themselves, what's a piece of advice you would like to give them? Well, I always tell kids the story of, and it, it, it sounds boastful, but it's you'll understand why it's not. So I got to meet J.K. Rowling right after Harry Potter came out. And it was because, you know, Jake or Joe was not yet the world famous, incredible right. icon she is. She was the, the book had not yet come out in America. She came to Scholastic offices and a bunch of us were given the opportunity to meet her Um you know, in, in, as Harry Potter was, was right. about to be released. And I read the book and I thought it was just so wonderful. And I had written my first novel that I thought would be a masterpiece. And it was, it took me three years and it was just like the worst thing ever. So I just gave up completely and thought, forget it. I have no talent. That was humiliating. I've never, you know, just like, oh my gosh. And I said, I made a comment to her, like, I loved your book so much. And she said, um, she thanked me. And I said, and I just like, wow, it was your first book. And she said, well, it wasn't my first book. And she mentioned she'd written, you know, she'd written one or two others. And I said, really, what are they? And she said, oh, no, they're, they're locked in a drawer. You know, I don't know there, <laughs> no one would ever see those books. And then she said, don't you think a person has to write one or two bad books before they could write a good book? Yeah. And that just was so liberating to me. Yeah. And that's the advice I like to share with kids is that don't see these books that you write or your first story or your first paragraph that isn't, that's, you know, that might just seem terrible to you um, as a failure. It's just part of the path of learning. Just like I always say to kids, you know, who likes to play a sport? Who likes to bake? Who likes to dance? Who likes to, you know, who plays an instrument? Who does art? Who plays Minecraft? Right. You know, all of those things are like writing. You start them. If you like it, you get, you do it a lot, you get better. And some days you have an amazing game and you hit a home run. And some days you strike out every time and writing's the same way. So that's my advice. Start writing your bad book and then be really proud of it. That's, that's some solid advice because how often, especially on social media, do we work hard to have a picturesque existence? And the truth of the matter is uh, none of us do. And it's, uh, it's messy and it's complicated and we're working and some days are better than others. But yeah, some days you got bad books and some days you got bestsellers and then everything oh, in between. It's so dispiriting. I, I think that that's like, that's very brilliant. I never even, I should have added like, that is a great, that's sort of, I think my doggy book is like the antidote of that. It is. Yes. It's like, we're now able to just completely present whatever, you know, these like perfect, you know, retouched images of our lives, our families, our workplaces, everything, our meals. Yes. And it's 
just so ter- it's so toxic. Yeah, it really <laughs> it's, is. It's terrible. Um, so I think that, um, and I tell kids that one of the most dispiriting moments that I remember from my childhood is when an author came to our school. She was so lovely. I don't remember her name and I would feel terrible if she ever thought that I was like bad mouthing her, but she said, she said something that made me feel so terrible. It really, it stuck in my brain forever. She said, I always knew I was going to be a writer. I knew from the age of five or six that I had been born with a special gift. I can picture her Whoa. in our library. And she meant it, you know, and sure. I'm great. But I just thought, oh, well, you're supposed to have a gift. <laughs> oh, I don't have a gift. I knew I was like, holy moly. Uh, you know, it was just such a, it's very dispiriting it to is. think you're supposed to be perfect. So no, uh, but that is some good advice. Well, this is wonderful. We're going to move on to the next part of the show, which is things to check out. So it's a segment where I will provide a recommendation of something I'm watching, reading, listening to, and I ask my guests to do the same. So I will go first. A couple of recommendations that I have. Um, they're more geared towards kids this week. So uh, my kids and I are really enjoying the the show on Disney Plus called Monsters at Work. So it takes place after Monsters, Inc. and is about what happens when an entire industry built around one thing, scaring for energy, uh, goes green in a sense and uh, gets laugh energy. And a lot of people that graduated with scare degrees are trying to learn new skills. Um, it's funny. It's fun. It's highly relevant uh, to all adults and people coming out of college uh, in certain situations. So definitely recommend recommend that. And then uh, my kids and I started listening to a podcast called Stories Podcast, a bedtime show for kids of all ages from Wondery. And we've dabbled in a little bit of different story related podcasts, but we like this one. Um, my kids really uh, enjoy the host and the way she reads, but I like it because it reminds me in a lot of ways of of reading Rainbow, which I grew up with. Um, so LeVar Burton does the one LeVar Burton reads for adults, but this, this kind of fills that gap that um, I had when I was a kid. So those are my recommendations. Lauren, what are you watching, reading, or listening to? Well, I'll tell you, I just had a dreamy... Um three hours, I was in Cape Cod with my family on vacation. And one of my, I run up the things that I always would do with my kids when they were younger. It was always, it was always bad weather when we went there, you know? So, so I would go to this beautiful little library, Wellfleet library and, you know, not a, you know, not a fancy library. This is, and we would go into the children's section and we would just, you know, we would just stay there for like three hours. And again, I told you, my kids don't love to read, but it was, this was really more just exploring. Mm. And you know, when you're walking and you're and it's not a big, it's a small children's section, just sort of pulling out randomly, pull, like random pulling out of, as in that we were in the picture, we would do the picture book section. So I decided my kids are grown. I was there by myself and I wandered into the library and I did that myself and I, and I, and I realized every parent should do that with mm. their kids. Instead of looking for something to read, just go to the library, the children's and almost close your eyes. And I, it, and especially in the picture book section, and especially if you, there were, there were, I came, I, I had, I was just, there was a book called Orangutan's Hats. <laughs> you should, I reckon, and it's all the tools that animals know how to make. And there's a b- wonderful book that my friend Kate Messner wrote about um, Dr. Fauci oh. that, yeah, that that she wrote that I just, that there it was. And there was an old Tommy DePaolo book on, you know, from, I don't even know when it was, one of these lovely 
on popcorn and who knew that the history of popcorn was so fascinating. <laughs> so that's my, that's what, that's my recommendation. And I made a vow to kind of try to do that like every couple months to just go to a library, go into the children's section with no intent and just, um, just explore. I love that. Kate Messner, former guest on the show. We talked about her book Chirp last year. Oh, and, oh, oh I love that book so much. So I've read it multiple times. It is so Beautiful. good. And I cannot wait for my kids to be old enough that I can just give it to them and say, enjoy. Oh, it's so good. But but I digress. I um, love that book so yeah, much too. So I, good. I, I would definitely recommend that. The other thing that I just read, reread actually, which I would recommend because, you know, with 9-11, the, the 20th anniversary coming out and for yeah. parents with older children who are curious about it, um, you know, I have my books, but Jewel Parker Rhodes' book, Towers Falling, mm. is such a wonderful book. And it's a different sort of 9-11 book because it's set after 9-11. It's about a girl named Deja, who's she and her family are homeless and she finds herself at a school where she's makes friends and unlocks the mystery of why her father has sort of, you know, is, is ailing and it connects back to 9-11. So it's a, just a really, it's a beautiful book in such a, a, a gentle way of exploring 9-11. I like that. That's very, very good. A lot of great recommendations. Thank you for that. Uh, we are going to pivot to the final part of the show. It's the dad joke of the week. It's a segment where I hurl dad jokes at my unsuspecting guest in an attempt to get oh them gosh. to laugh while the audience groans. But I, uh, I can't hear the audience. I can only hear my guests. So it works out. Uh, but I do like to put my guest on the spot. Lauren, do you have any jokes you would like to offer up today? Mm. I can tell you, well, I actually just, it's too long to tell you because, and I'm not going to tell it because um, I recently told a few of my friends the first joke my dad ever told me, my dad loved telling jokes and he would love, oh, always had a joke. And I thought it was, and it was, so he told me when I was maybe six years old, I thought it was hilarious. And um, it was just was a very long, 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 long joke, but I'm dying to hear your jokes, Joe. And then well, I'll call my dad and tell them. Well, I heard one today. So I've got some one-liners, um, but before I even get to those, I did hear a joke today that I inserted last minute because it, it made me laugh. I'm hyping it up. It's going to probably fall flat, but, but Lauren, where do bad rainbows go? Where do they go, Joe? Prism. Because it's a light sentence. Wow. <laughs> that is very, that is, that is a, that is a good, that is a good joke. It's funny. It's what I love is when it's just like a really cute, it's really cute that someone told you that joke. Right, right. <laughs> um, all right. I got a couple one-liners for you. Uh, Earlier today, I just burned 2,000 calories, and that is the last time that I leave brownies in the oven while I nap. Very good. Very good. I don't have a, I need like a good, like, actress laugh. Right. Like, like a cackle. <laughs> yes, a cackle. Everybody needs a good cackle in their repertoire to be able they to pull up. Practice mine. I have to tell you, before I started recording, my wife told me to stop impersonating a flamingo, and I had to put my foot down. I just had well, to. Well, that's my... a very cute there one. It is. There it is. All right, all right. Well, well my dad, the other one my dad told me that I thought was so funny. It was one. Actually, I will tell you my joke. 
so when we were little, we had the New Yorker, this old New Yorker book of New Yorker cartoons, mm -hmm. very old. It was probably one of their first compilations. I mean, this is the seventies and yeah. it was this book that sat on our coffee table. And as I got older, like beginning when I was your kid's age, I would look at them. I didn't understand any of them, but right. I would sort of always look. And then as I got older, I started to understand the first one I understood that I thought was so funny and I was so proud. Okay. Here's what it was. It was, the picture was a uh, storm toss night, thunder and lightning, rain pouring down and a truck on its side with a tree poked up into the middle of like the trailer part mm -hmm. of it, the track, the trailer part. And on the side of the, uh, there are two truck drivers standing there worry, worriedly on the side of the road. And then there's the side of the truck says, instant mashed potatoes, just <laughs> add water. And the caption is one of the truck drivers saying to the other, all we can do now is pray. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I thought that was so funny. That's good. I like it. I like it. All right. Well, Lauren, if people want to follow you and see what you're up to, what is the best way for them to do that? Well, I'm on Twitter. Um, and my website is laurentarshes.com. That's probably the best way because I I keep it very up to date with any appearances and books coming out. And I have tons and tons of free resources for all of my books for parents and kids and teachers. So people should definitely check that out. If they're reading any of my, I survive books, there's videos, there's now we have like word searches, little read aloud scenes that, um, that are all free to, to, to download. Well, perfect. I'm going to go follow you right away. So that way I don't miss anything. And I really appreciate you coming on the show today, Lauren. Thank you so, so much. Thank you, Joe. What you're just a delight. I loved being with you. So I appreciate it. Well, listeners, thank you. Thank you so much. So uh, listeners, you've been detoxing with detox. Now go and make a more inclusive world. If you know of an interesting person or story that needs to be told, please reach out to me at detoxpodcast at gmail.com. That's D-T-A-L-K-S podcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Detox Podcast or visit DetoxPodcast.com. Also, be sure to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes if you like the show. It only takes a few seconds and it really helps us out. Link is in the show notes. Finally, thanks for listening. Please come back next week when we'll have another interesting conversation. And special thanks to my producers, Ben Lawant and Galan Aldaco. Without your help and support, this show wouldn't be possible. Thanks so much, guys. Detox is a production of Vocal. For more information and more programming, please visit vocalnow.com. That's V-O-K-A-L-N-O-W dot com.